This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Hello, I'm Jonathan Dimbleby. Thanks for taking the time to download this edition of Any Questions from BBC Radio 4. Welcome to the first Any Questions of the Year. We are in West Sussex in the village of Henfield, which is roughly halfway between Brighton to the south and Horsham to the north. We are in the village hall to help celebrate the 2019 Henfield Festival. On our panel, the Secretary of State for Housing, Local Government and Communities, James Brokenshire, the Shadow Home Secretary, Diane Abbott, the President of the English Chess Federation, who's also a political columnist for the Sunday Times and the Daily Mail, probably to his irritation, but there is invariably curiosity about such matters. I might mention that his father was once Chancellor of the Exchequer, his sister is a celebrity chef. He is Dominic Lawson. Amanda McWashy has worked for much of her professional life so far in charities, which have had a pretty hard time of it one way or another recently. She's worked for VSO International, for the United Nations Development Programme, and she is now Chief Executive of Christian Aid. Christian Aid has an income of around 100 million a year and acts as the official relief and development agency for 41 British and Irish churches works in 37 countries around the world to promote sustainable development, to combat poverty, and to provide disaster relief. Of Christian age, she says, it represents to me much of the goodness found in humanity. Our panel. And our first question, please. Wendy Knoll, what did the panel feel about MPs calling for a Minister for Hunger in the light of increasing numbers of people relying on food banks? A Minister for Hunger, this is the Environmental Audit Committee, which says that 19% of under 15-year-olds now live with an adult who has limited access to food due to lack of money or other resources. Dominic Lawson, what did you make of that? Um, Generally, I'm suspicious of the creation of new ministerial posts Uh, they tend to be gimmicks often. Uh, If you remember, in the 1970s, we we had the spectacle of a minister for rain being introduced because it it was the driest summer that anyone could remember. And it's true, it did start to rain after that, but it it wasn't connected. Um, I think that, uh, funnily enough, I uh, go for a bit of a tangent. I think, of course, one of the issues uh, with if people are going hungry, obviously, is that they have no money or very little money. And one of the things which I think will have helped this, uh, and I pay great tribute to Tracy Crouch, the MP, who campaigned, as I did actually in in the newspaper, to uh, end the scourge of fixed-odds betting terminals, where the poorest people in the country, and these are concentrated in poor areas, were losing billions. And I mean billions. Uh, Last year, two billion were lost. And if we see a decline in this gambling, where, as I said, the poorest are being exploited... Um, that might help a bit, because there are two kinds of poverty. I mean, there is the lack of food. One is a genuine problem that there's simply not enough money in the first place, and the other is lifestyles which lead, for example, to gambling or drink or whatever, and those have to be addressed, and those are not to do specifically with money, but I would say broadly social care. And so I think that to, to, to say you would have a specific minister for hunger, I think, doesn't address the broadest nature of the problem. According to the Audit Committee, the number is significant and growing, and that the most affected are the unemployed, the sick, and those with children. Touched on that at the beginning. Um, Diane Abbott, 
Well, this is a very serious question. I've been in public life for over 30 years, and I've never known a time when so many people had, in effect, to beg for free food, because that's what food banks are. You, in London, certainly, you're seeing more beggars on the street than ever. And one of the most alarming things about the numbers of food banks is that there are people in employment, like young nurses and so on, who cannot manage, particularly in a city like, in Lon- like London, where, has, where rents and so on are so high, and they have to go to food banks. I think this government should be ashamed at having presided over this rise and rise in people having to go to food banks. I think, in terms of having a minister specifically for hunger, I'm not sure that's the issue, but the government really needs to, and is actually starting to look at how the benefit system works, how the universal credit system has worked, and Amber Rudd did announce some improvements today. Not enough, but she has announced them. But, you know, this is one of still one of the wealthiest countries in the world. And governments should be ashamed. There are people who cannot afford to eat and cannot afford to feed their So children. if there were a Labour government, what would your strategy be, given that the numbers have increased, but... Uh, People, you touched on rough and homeless people, has been there for a very long time, one government after another. What would your strategy be to eradicate or dramatically reduce the problem? Oh, no, let me, uh, let me say that actually the numbers of street homeless in London have risen. There's no question. Yeah, I, I if, said you, that. if you know London, you, you've seen it go up. And our strategy would be to look at the benefit system. The, the government has tried to construct... But took money. I mean, George Osborne took money out of the benefit system at the beginning of the the Tory administration or the coalition administration in 2010. They took money out of the benefit system, and they seemed to think that the more punitive the benefit system was, they called it incentives. Actually, it meant that people couldn't afford to eat. I also think we have to look at some issues around employment. So, the government did away with bursaries for nurses. That's part of the reason why young women go into nursing now. Some of them in London find themselves using food banks. You have to look at the totality of your social and your benefits policy, but above all, as I say, we should be ashamed that in the richest, one of the richest countries in the world, there are people that cannot afford to feed their children. Are you ashamed, Secretary of State? Well, I want to see a fairer society that is focused on lifting people out of poverty, and the way that that works best is by creating jobs. And I think it is important to underline that there are clear issues, yes, That's why Amber Rudd has been making the statements he has today around universal credit, which profoundly is about helping people into work, ensuring that we have a simpler system that actually breaks down some of the complexities that may prevent people from actually getting the welfare, getting the support they need. Because that profoundly is what we want to see and what we want to achieve through our reforms to universal credit. Indeed, ensuring that there is that sense of opportunity from whatever background people come from. And so I do look at where the performance 
businesses, and yes, we have taken action, for example, in relation to the lowest earners seeing their fastest pay rise in 20 years. But it, it's looking at the context of this, some of the complexity, some of the challenges that I see in dealing with the very points that Diane is pointing out around homelessness, rough sleeping, where there are challenges there of complex needs of addiction, of family breakdown, of, uh, of other mental health issues, and how we are pulling together across government to challenge, to ensure that we have solutions that aren't about slogans. They're about providing help, providing support, ensuring that we are making that change and ensuring that some of the most vulnerable are not left behind. Do you accept what the uh, audit committee says, that there are a significant and growing number of people with limited access to food and who are therefore, according to the definition, um, living with hunger? Well, I think if you look at the different statistics, you know, equally I could point to the fact that no, the number of, point of people point, and children in absolute poverty are at record that, that, lows. That's not quite the issue, is it? That may be the case. Does it alter the fact that I just have suggested to you is a fact identified by the audit committee that there is a significant and growing number of under 15 year olds living in households with limited access to food for a variety of reasons do you accept that to be the case well i think we need to look at the different evidence that is there but am i concerned that there are vulnerable people who are not getting the support that they need absolutely yes i am that is why i strongly support the work that amber rudd has been doing indeed steps being taken today around housing and actually seeing that we have direct payment of universal credit to landlords to ensure that people are getting the housing support that they need and that sense of opportunity and therefore wanting and seeing that we do create that system that universal credit for example is all about about helping people out of poverty into work that simpler system and ensuring that we are not letting the vulnerable behind where sometimes those complex needs that people have mean they need that extra help and support that is what we're doing that's why we're seeking to make that difference chief executive of christian aid amanda mcrushi I have to say that uh, the very fact that we're having a conversation and a discussion on people experiencing hunger in the fifth richest country in the world makes me really sad. It makes... Mm. It, it makes me sad because I spend, people like me who work in international development, spend most of our time working in developing countries, in poor countries, where people are suffering, people have no access to uh, shelter, no access to healthcare, and no food. They go hungry. And one thing that I know for a fact is that it robs you of your dignity as a human being. And in this country, I have experienced, personal experience, where it has been really difficult for me to put food on the table. It robs you of your dignity. You, especially you, you personally had, were in that situation of not having the resources to put food on the table? Not to put enough food on the table. I was in this situation in this country uh, where I would go to work, my husband goes to work, and it would be difficult for us to have three meals a day. Why? Were well, you on very low pay? Very low pay, yes. How long ago but is this? This is many years ago. Yeah. Many years ago. I've come through. But the point that I'm trying to make, Jonathan, is that um, whatever the, 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 the decision is, whether you should have a focused minister or not, the end result is that there are adequate and enough resources in this country to ensure that everybody doesn't go hungry. And I think that um, it is a poor indictment 
on our politicians if we have people in this day and age in the United Kingdom who are going hungry and are sleeping on the streets. Thank you. Any answers may well be for you on this or any of the other issues that are coming up. Anita Arnand will be there, 03 700 100 444. You can email any.answers at bbc.co.uk, tweet hashtag BBCAQ and follow us at BBC Politics. We'll go to our next, please. Diane Fuel. We see terrible pictures from refugee camps all over the world. Winter is now impacting the Northern Hemisphere. Have developed nations lost their humanity? Have developed nations lost their humanity? Um, 66 million people, I think, according to the United Nations, are forcibly displaced at the moment around the world. I'm going to start with you, although you just finished the last question on related, well, somewhat related topic. Terrible pictures of refugee camps. Have developed nations lost their humanity? Amanda McWashi. Over 60 uh, million people, that is, uh, that is accurate. Um, most of them internally displaced. By that, I mean uh, most of them are actually displaced within their own countries. They haven't crossed any borders to go anywhere else. Um, like the conversation we've just been having, they have no accommodation, they've got no food, no access to uh, health care, and quite a lot of uh, um, harassment, abuse, and violence. Um, uh, for those that are most vulnerable. I think that uh, you will find that uh, a lot of countries and a lot of charities such as, um, the, such as Christian Aid are doing everything that we can. An example that I can give you is we are in Bangladesh. We are working with the Rohingya. We are ensuring that they have the services and the support that they need. But we are only able to do this because actually we get also support from the British government um, uh, through DFID, who actually give us some resources to ensure that we are reaching those that are in humanitarian crisis. And I think this is invaluable and this must not be lost in the bigger scheme of things. On the, on the slightly broader implications of what you've just described, which is of refugees from some of these countries, as we know, seeking to get into Europe, mm -hmm. asylum seekers, migrants, whatever you wish to describe them as. The question is, do you feel that developed nations, by their attitude towards those people, have lost their humanity, as Diane Fuel asks? I think that there is a, a dangerous uh, element and aspect of that that we are seeing emerging uh, with um, some of the some of the leaders that uh, are coming uh, in, in in different in different countries uh, have they completely lost their humanity i don 't think so I think it would be unfair for me to say they 've completely lost uh, uh, their humanity but I think that 's the direction that we are going because we are focusing we are having a politics of fear. We are focusing on being afraid that they might come into our countries and they might take our resources. Rather, we should change the debate and the discourse and look at making sure that our own people here have everything that they need because we are rich enough, we can afford to ensure that people at home are taken care of and we can afford to ensure that we are lending a hand and supporting and also taking our role as leaders um, in development and in setting that scene. Dominic Lawson. Um, no, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, I, I noticed, uh, I looked at Amanda's uh, charity, it's called Christian Aid, and you said uh, over 100 million. 
and it seems to be growing, the amount that you're getting each year. It's, it seems to be an upward trend. That, it's actually, I believe, I think I'm right. I, don't wish to, I think it's actually fallen a little bit recently. It's uh, just below it's, 100. We, we are, we're staying, no, we are, I think this last year we were over 100. Okay. Uh, we're yeah, staying stable. It seemed to be, and, and in fact, what I noticed was that you, that basically the amount of money you were getting from legacy payments, I mean, personal donations, was stable, and you were getting increased amounts from, if you like, agencies. So uh, if your charity is, is character, I don't know where it is, or whether you're particularly successful, it suggests that, that no, it's simply not true to say that people are losing their humanity. And your own uh, balance sheet shows the generosity uh, of people either as taxpayers or as individuals. Um, I think this issue of the individuals concerned uh, who are on the move, I think, uh, I'm not speaking for the British government, but I think, for example, uh, some of the most successful measures uh, have been financed by this government in Jordan, camps there, um, where there are many displaced people. And it's, it, I think it's the biggest in the world, and, and, and it's an extraordinary achievement by the British government. Uh, I think so, when Andrew Mitchell was, was Secretary of State. Um, and the point is, what happens uh, if people leave? The risk is that they are depleting their own country of some of their most able and strongest people. What is your, and, what is your view, sorry, given mm-hmm. that that may well be the mm-hmm. case, what is your view of the way in which some of the media, not excluding one of the papers for which you write, uh, viewed the numbers of people who have been coming across the channel from France uh, seeking asylum in the first instance, mm-hmm. does that betray an attitude towards them that is uh, quite consistent with a humanity in their attitude? Mm. Well, I mean, I have to be careful. I'm not the editor of either paper. No, no, in fact, was, of course. In fact, I haven't written about this myself, so I can't quote anything that I've, I've said. But uh, I, think what is, <laughs> I think that what some of the papers are saying is that uh, if people are seeking asylum and they're coming in from France, and France, although you can criticise it for, for, for many reasons, it's a civilised country. Um, and the idea that people should be coming, fleeing France to come to the UK strikes people as strange, although I would say that actually it does... Sh- I, I'm, gr- I'm grateful that it shows a great confidence in, in this country, and indeed my own, uh, my own great-grandfather came from, from Russia uh, on his own you know, and, and came to this country and, and to, so- to seek a better life, so I can see the benefits of it, but it, it is... I'm sorry to be clichéd, but there is, there is an issue always of public acceptance and you and 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 it's a job of politicians to explain to the public if they wish to have a particular policy it is their job to explain it and defend it to the public james brokenshire i think that there is a huge amount of compassion and leadership that this country has shown over many many years as i think commander has already highlighted in terms of the work of our department for international development and when i look at the situation in response to the Syria crisis, the leading role that the UK has played in providing support, food, shelter, medical uh, vaccinations to literally millions of people. And how equally in response to the Syria uh, tragedy, uh, we set up Um, what was known as our Vulnerable Persons Relocation Scheme, to actually relocate some of the most vulnerable 
to come to this country. Our commitment of 20,000 people and how we are well over that, I think it's now around 13,600 people who have come to this country as a consequence. And therefore the work that I think we do need to continue to do, to show leadership internationally, in providing that support, in showing that as a wealthy country we have responsibilities in the world to be able to support some of the most vulnerable countries too. And that is certainly something that I think that as a country we have shown leadership and we should continue to do so. Shadow Home Secretary. <coughs> I don't think it's so much a case of people losing their humanity, but it is a case of a relentless media narrative, and in some cases political narrative, which tends to demonise refugees and migrants. And so if you think these people are the other it becomes that much easier to switch off from their plight. Over Christmas, a number of Iranians crossed the channel in rubber dinghies. I think the total number over the Christmas holiday would have fitted on a double-decker bus. And it was reported in the media as if these um, people were trying to restage the Normandy landings on the beaches of Kent. It was the most extraordinary um, uh, treatment. And yet, how desperate must you be? I know James is saying, well, why don't they claim asylum in France or whatever? But how desperate must you be to get into a rubber dinghy on the other side of the channel to try and get to this country? I think we've seen the dehumanisation of refugees and migrants. We've seen as... Amanda said the politics of fear also when people themselves are having it hard. It's easy to dehumanise and blame the other. But I would say this. I was very struck last year with the Windrush scandal when a whole cohort of people largely from the Caribbean who'd come here after the war found themselves, sadly, because of government policy, they were refused medical treatment, they were deported, they were treated very, very badly. But when this issue was brought to the public attention, I was reassured by how positive... The, when, when these people, as it were, were humanised for the public, I was reassured by how positive the public response was. And it was actually reflected in the debate in the House of Commons on both sides. So I would say we have not lost our humanity. There is too much of a dehumanising rhetoric in the media and in some quarter in politics, in some quarters in politics. But we have to remember that as a country, we have a responsibility to show leadership on these issues, okay. have shown leadership mm. under both governments. Yes. But always remember, and I speak as a child of migrants, refugees and migrants are human beings too. Mm. Here's two or three of the tweets. Um, individual people aren't losing their humanity, but influential sections of society are encouraging us to. Um, and another, they're people. The only difference between us all as human beings is our luck in where we're born. And then lastly, if you think that population migrations are a problem now, just wait until climate change gets a grip. Our next. Jack Jones. If the Prime Minister's deal is rejected on Tuesday, would extending Article 50 be the most sensible option? 
James Brokenshire. Well, we're working very clearly to see that the deal is approved next week, which is why the Prime Minister has made certain statements this week in respect of the Northern Ireland situation to give assurance domestically as to trade between Northern Ireland and Great Britain, protecting and providing what's been described as a lock, a storm on lock on devolution over new powers that might arise during this so-called backstop if we are not, uh, as we intend to create and see a trade deal in place by December 2020, and therefore the work firmly continuing to see a positive outcome. Because profoundly, there is a deal that is there that gives effect to Brexit, that actually sees that we do take back control of our money, our borders, and yes, sees the end of the jurisdiction of the European Court. And that is where we are focused in giving that assurance to my colleagues and colleagues across the House as to why it makes sense to support that deal and ensure that we get that positive vote. Now that you've taken us all by surprise by that answer, it's astonished everyone who is listening have no doubt at all. Your question is, if the deal is rejected, as the overwhelming number of people, including quite a lot of ministers and certainly conservative politicians in, a, in large numbers, um, is rejected on Tuesday, would Article 50 be the most sensible option, as a significant number of your own MPs are suggesting? No, the, the clear position is that we are leaving the European Union on the 29th of March. That remains the situation. That remains firmly the position. And that, therefore, we have a deal that is there, that is on the table, that members of Parliament can vote for and I think should vote for. Because, ultimately, you know, we can speculate tonight, and obviously the government will come back quickly, should, as I hope would not be the case, that vote is not carried. But I believe that, well, yes, within it's three, challenging. Within three it's, days, within yeah, three days. Right. It's, it's challenging, it's difficult, while the Prime Minister is continuing to work in the national interest to see that we get further assurances from the European Union. And I think, you think that is where the focus needs to whatever be. Whatever you think is desirable or undesirable, do you agree with the Foreign Secretary, Jeremy Hunt, who, who said this morning um, that the House of Commons is committed, one way or another, to stop no deal? I know you don't want mm. no deal. Do you share his view that the House of Commons is committing, committed to stopping no deal? I think, I think that if the, if the vote were not to be carried, what we can be certain about is uncertainty. And actually an increasing, I think, desire of certain elements within the House of Commons to try and block Brexit completely. But equally, you know, we must be prepared for a no deal. And that um, is what we're doing. Um, two cabinet ministers at least have openly said that they would find it impossible effectively to stay in the government if the Prime Minister does say, right, it is now no deal. Amber Rudd this morning made it clear by not answering the question that she was one of those three. They wouldn't stay in the cabinet. She got two, three, four. The, uh, the BBC's political editor, Laura Koonsberg, says that she knows that there are five uh, senior ministers who wouldn't stay. Simple question. If the Prime Minister says, right, there is no deal, there is, there, you don't like my deal, so it is now no deal. I'm not coming forward with anything else. Would you support her or not? I'm very clear that we need to give effect to that vote of the British public and see that the UK leaves the European Union on the 29th of March. Is that a yes or a no to the question? No, I, I'm, I'm in my role supporting work to cover all eventualities, which includes no-deal preparation. And therefore, it is that step. It's not something that I want to see, but I think we need to be prepared for all eventualities. But as I say... 
if we do not see this vote carried, and that certainty, that opportunity for us to move forward as a country is there, then I think there are risks of either not seeing Brexit because of the actions that we've seen across Parliament this week, which I think would not give effect to the wishes of the British public, and that's where the referendum result clearly pointed, and how I think as a duty we have as a government and a Parliament to give effect to that. Even if that ended up with what David Liddington, who's the effective Deputy Prime Minister, uh, describes as what he thinks would be a disaster. Well, none of us want to see a no deal, and that's why... Is that 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 your kind of word as well? But but that's, you know, there will be be short-term implications of a a no deal, but that's, that's actually why we have something there that's positive, that I want and I hope that colleagues, and some of them are coming around to this, to seeing the benefits of actually moving forward with a fair deal that has been negotiated with the European Union. And actually, the real drive that the Prime Minister has shown, acting in the national interest, against lots of people who say what they're... Uh, what they're against, but not what they're for. And therefore, okay. that's uh, that, I think, clear message that we are giving, providing that certainty, taking our country forward, and actually getting on with it, which is what I think so many people want us to do, and getting on with all of those other issues that we've started debating tonight, and which I'm sure there'll be more to debate later on. Diane Abbott. With the greatest of respect, James, the government needs to stop thre- threatening people to vote for their very bad deal. The truth is, whatever you think about Brexit, Theresa May has had two years to sort this out, and it's been a disaster. When you think that having had two years to sort it out, only this week is she speaking to Labour MPs, you have to say, what has she been doing for that two years? And what would the most sensible thing be to happen? The most sensible thing, and what would have happened in almost any other era, is if this deal goes down, something which has been the centrepiece of Theresa May's administration, how she justifies her administration, if this deal goes down, she should step down. And in almost any other era, a prime minister in that position would have done that. It may be, but I mean, I share people's concerns, it may be that extending Article 50 is an option, mm. but, the, but it may be. But it's not the can I, only... Can I ask you, if you think yeah. it may be honest, let us say for the purposes of reality um, that there is not going to be a general election as a consequence of the vote not going through on Tuesday. Um, but even if there is, is there any alternative? You always talk about your alternatives, one of which you say is a second referendum. Is there any alternative that would be possible in the timescale without extending, from Labour's point of view, the Article 50 deadline? We think that there is an alternative deal which would involve staying in the customs unions, both for the benefit of British manufacturing industry and because of the Northern Ireland border. I'm not, I'm not rejecting the idea of extending Article 50 out of hand. It is an option. But what we have to focus on is Theresa May had two years to sort this out, and it's a disaster. And if everything that people are saying is correct, that deal will go down to the biggest margin that we've ever seen for such a serious piece of legislation. Just one more thing. Um, You say there might have to be an extension of of Article 50. Let us say that you don't get your election, which certainly most people's judgment won't get, and that one of your options, possibly the only one that you ever actually identify clearly, is therefore uh, 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 another referendum. 
Um, how would you vote? Would you vote to remain or to leave or to adopt the deal which you now reject? Which of those three would you, Diane Abbott, support? Well, let, let me say... Well, just answer the, the question. It's no, very no, simple. No, I will answer the question. You know me, Jonathan. I always answer the question. But on the question of the second referendum... I wouldn't reject it out of hand, but people, I keep saying this, people should be careful what they wish for. My suspicion is that if we had a second referendum tomorrow, Leave would win again, and there'd also be a lot of very annoyed Leave voters. So I don't think it's a kind of silver bullet. So I'm going to ask one more question. But if there was a second referendum, I voted to remain in the last referendum, even though I have an immaculate record on voting against further measures of EU integration, and I would vote to remain in a second referendum. You didn't indeed answer the question. (laughs) Dominic Lawson. Well, uh, the question was, uh, should we uh, extend Article 50? Uh, It shows a certain arrogance, because, of course, it's not up to us. The EU 27 and all of them, jointly and severally, have to agree it. And they may well not want to agree that. It may well be that they think the deal at the moment is, as they would say, (laughs) the best deal and the only deal. Um, And Diane uh, put forward this uh, idea of remaining in the customs union. But as I understand the Labour position... It's a customs union in which, while we weren't a member of the EU, we would have effective influence, control, and possibly veto within it, so we wouldn't be passive. Let me inform Diane and the audience. The chances of the EU agreeing for Britain to have any kind of veto right within the customs union, while not being members of the EU, is precisely zero. And so it's, you know... uh, And by the way, they would be right. Just on on that one point... Is that not the case? It's a a point that's made constantly, that they certainly wouldn't let you uh, be the only individual government inside the customs union which would have a sort of choice about whether or not it wants to do trade deals unilaterally. And yet that seems to be your position. That's not what I said. I said we needed to stay in a customs union because, and any manufacturer or businessman will tell you, that they're very frightened of a disruption to their their work and their supply chains from not being in the customs Diane, union, I, not to mention Northern Ireland. Yeah. But I haven't said we'd be the yeah, only I understand, country with I, I understand, I understand. But we have to stay in a customs yeah, union. The, That's my position. Yeah, but, but, That's but the, all I've said. The, the point is, there are only two forms. Either you're in the customs union like Turkey, in which mm. case you are offered up, the British territory, the British market is offered up to third countries, and we have no reciprocal rights. That is how Turkey is a member of the customs union. That is completely unacceptable to this country and to any country with any self-respect. Now, the alternative is what I think Labour is proposing. They're saying, no, 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 we wouldn't be passive. We would have negotiating rights, and therefore we could say no to this. And what I'm saying is, that is, if anything is a unicorn, that is sheer unicornism. Fantasy. Fantasy politics. Fantasy politics. And, and, you're, and, 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 and by the way, Diane, you're far too intelligent not to realise that. Please don't tell me what Labour's position is. 
Would you, would you be in favour to go, answer Jack Jones's question that extending Article 50 as the most sensible option as the Prime Minister's deal goes well, down? Well, as I said, it, it's not up to us. No, I mean, no, no. It, I, given that it's not up to you, would you be no, in favour okay, of, no. of seeking okay, to ask the, question, the European I'll Union? I'll answer the best thing is, I, I, I'm partly acknowledging uh, Amanda here, Christian Aid, and I'm thinking uh, when they have papal elections, they have a conclave. Conclave means conclave with keys. They are locked up, the cardinals, until they come up with an answer. And they're not allowed to come out until they've delivered an answer. Now, that... And by the way, and by the way in, in the 13th century, it took three years. They were on bread and water by the end, and three of them, unfortunately, died. But I think... <laughs> but they got, a card, they got a pope in the end, and I think I would recommend that. So you're going to lock... You're going to lock James and I up on my shoulder. Amanda... Dominic was thinking of you. <laughs> yes, What's your uh, answer to the question? Well, first of all, thank you very much for helping me to meet my New Year's resolution and laugh, uh, uh, laugh a lot. Um, my, my direct answer to the question is uh, I don't know if uh, it would necessarily be a good thing or a, or a bad thing. And I want to put into context, um, I want to come out a little bit because I think the Brexit conversation has led us, has left us in a state of chaos. I think that's putting it mildly. I'm not saying anything that anybody doesn't know or that we don't all know. And it's going to end. It's going, there's, there's a finish point. And past that, what is going to remain behind is a divided nation, a divided union. It's going to be uh, polari polarized uh, debates, uh, poisonous uh, sentiments across. You're entrenched in your position. If you're a Remainer, you're a Remainer. If you're a Lever, you're a Lever. If you're, and, and so on. And unfortunately, that is the long-term um, uh, situation that we have to deal with. So for me, I think the key thing here is, one, you know, it's time that we moved beyond the party politics. Please, let's move beyond the party politics. There comes a time in any uh, conversation where you put aside your differences, you come together because the country needs you, the whole United Kingdom needs our politicians to take concrete decisions, and it's not tomorrow, it's today, the time is now. And actually, it's very discouraging it's very discouraging when you see politicians always responding from a tactical party political position. So my, my, my big sort of ask is stop that and it's not too much for us to expect of our politicians to actually come up with the, a solution. That my second very quick point is that I th I'm thinking of Brexit as a dress rehearsal for the bigger, bigger, much more existential questions that the world has to grapple with. And if we are not ready for dialogue as a country, we are really going to be in trouble. Issues like climate change, issues of violence, conflict, humanitarian crisis, issues of the fact that leaders are walking away from international agreements that have safeguarded human rights for the last 50 odd years. We need to be ready to take a leadership position and an influential position, and at the moment, we are not.
Any answers? 03 700 100 444. We'll go to our next, please. Annabelle Eastwood. New houses must be built, but how do we push for more brownfield sites rather than spoiling the greenfield sites? Brownfield sites rather than spoiling greenfield sites, which, judging by the number of questions we've had on that, is not insignificant as an issue in this part of the world. Um, Diane Abbott, I start by saying there are 460 homes, I think, planned on greenfield sites at the moment, and campaign groups like the Campaign for the Protection of Rural England to say that local authorities have enough brownfield sites for more than 720,000 homes. 460,000 a plan. Of course, there's also the issue in the background here of shelter demanding, not demanding, saying that, that over the next 20 years, three million social homes should be built. Diane Abbott. Well, you shouldn't need to build on greenfield sites. There are plenty of not just um, land owned by local authorities, but land owned by transport entities to transport for London who have land. Hospitals have spare land. I don't think it's necessary to build on greenfield sites. But we're not making enough use of existing sites. And sadly, under Boris Johnson, you know, a man that adds to the mirth of nations, but when he was mayor of London, he sold off far too many brownfield sites to property developers, whether it was hospitals, whether it was um, fire stations. And what we need is local authority leaders who resist this temptation to make quick money selling off to property developers and make their brownfield sites available for the housing we so desperately need. Housing Secretary. The housing issue is, I think, one of the biggest challenges that we face in our country at the moment, building the homes our country needs, giving that sense of hope and opportunity for the next generation coming through, and actually dealing with some of the real pressures over rent levels and the price of property. But how we do that in a way that builds consent actually ensures that people support that development, I think is so, so key. And I'm certainly not one who wants to see us building all the homes by building all over our green belt. And I know here in this village the challenge of things like neighbourhood planning, how I think that there is a real role that neighbourhoods and communities have to shape this, how we should support that. But it's worth, it's worth noting that we do have an intent to build up to 300,000 <coughs> homes a year to actually meet that challenge, that long-term challenge. And I know when, that we when need is that, to... When is that? Sorry to interrupt you. Um, at mm. the moment, you've got, what, 250,000 by 22? There's, there's 222,000 was the delivery in the last year, and we want to see up to 300,000 homes built a year by the mid-2020s, effectively going back to that post-war position. And what and proportion it is, it of that, is that large increase would have to be built, in your view, on greenfield sites in order to meet the demand? Well, I think that we can actually maximise the space, for example, in places like our high streets, actually ensuring that we're getting building over our shops where that's possible, actually seeing how we use some of the vacant units as well, actually being creative over the space that we're doing, doing it in a way where we can build beautifully, actually see that that sense of design and style is built into this. But so forgive me, have you not opened up... ..the homes our country needs? Have, have you, forgive me, but have you not um, made it easier for developers to build on greenfield sites because of the alleged shortage that they claim there is? 
Well, the, what, the, what, planning, the planning laws have been eased, have they not? Which is what, what the campaigners don't like. Well, what we've done is that we've effectively creating a what's known as a plan-led system where councils are able to set their local plans, actually working with communities to design and support this. But on the green belt, absolutely. You know, I think that that needs to be protected, that needs to be safeguarded. I'm not one who is advocating that we should be effectively building all over our green belt in order to hit those housing targets. I think we can do this creatively, how we use the existing built environment and indeed that brownfield sites that are there. And actually the protections that are around Green Belt have been upheld and strengthened through our planning guidance to ensure that that is the focus. Dominic Lawson. Well, I think uh, one of the problems is that we have an incredibly uh, complex, difficult, cumbersome and expensive planning system. And what that means is that small companies find it absolutely impossible to operate in that environment. You know, you require require sort of uh, lorries full of lawyers before you can even take the first step. Um, And so you have this, I think, what comes from an oligopoly, a few gigantic companies which have enormous bargaining power. And so I think a certain amount of liberalization or simplification of planning laws would be a very good thing. The other thing about, uh, uh, is we, I think Amanda was talking earlier about London and property in London. You know, the huge demand is in, is, is in central London. That is where property is unbelievably expensive. That's where the concentration is. And I suspect that we might have to look at the issues of light and density because there are lots of, lots of developments, you, or developments which you would like to do which are very difficult in the numbers you'd want under the current constraints. And yet if you go to certain parts of London, some very beautiful 18th century streets with very posh houses and very rich people living there, and yet the light and the density there is one that would now be illegal. So I do think we have to look at this. Thank you. Um, Amanda McWashington, so that's, that's a point that I think the campaign for the protection of rural England has made and did some amazingly they, detailed research to demonstrate that that They, they did indeed, like and I was, I was too miserly to acknowledge them. Uh, Amanda McWashi. <clears throat> Very short for me. Um, we have vo- people who go out to work uh, and sleep in their cars because they cannot find affordable housing, affordable accommodation. Find a solution. We can squeeze in, very briefly, one more. Swift answers, swift question, please. Peter Bates, did the panel members make a New Year resolution? And if so, have they kept it so far? Let's go along the line. New Year's resolution, have you kept it, Diane? No, I tried to make a New Year's resolution to have a dry January, and I think I kept it up until the 1st of January, and then I broke it. (laughs) Uh, Amanda... I, I think I've kept uh, my New Year's resolution. I want to laugh a little bit more. I think it's going to generate a lot of happiness and joy, and I'm hoping I can pass it, I pass it on to others. And you laughed in the programme, too. I did, too. That's quite a rare thing on this yes. programme. Um, well, not that rare. Um, James? Well, as my, my birthday is a week after uh, New Year, uh, I'm normally in the business of trying to get others to break their New Year's resolutions by uh, coming out and celebrating. So, uh, no. <laughs> and Dominic? Uh, well, I, my resolution was to get on my exercise bike every day, and it survived January the 1st. Uh, but since then, we've not been reacquainted. <laughs> Which uh, brings us, unhappily, to the end of this first programme of the year. Next week, we're going to be in Huddersfield in the university there in West Yorkshire. Um, we haven't got a panel. At least I don't know what the panel is yet. We will have a brilliant panel for sure. Um, meanwhile, from Henfield Hall in West Sussex, goodbye.
Did you enjoy the podcast? Discover more music, radio and podcasts on BBC Sounds.